On February 24th, 2022, at around 5.15 a.m. Eastern European Time, NBC News reported that Russian military forces began a full-scale invasion into eastern Ukraine. At the time of this recording, Russian forces, at the call of President Vladimir Putin, have carried out 203 attacks, destroyed over 70 Ukrainian military facilities, and left countless number of people, civilians and troops, dead, wounded, and or displaced from their homes, according to Al Jazeera. As you can probably already tell, this episode isn't going to be fun, upbeat, lighthearted, or silly. And admittedly, being a 22-year-old living in the United States during current events in Ukraine does give me a certain amount of privilege that I want to name right at the top of this show. However, as someone who is passionate about promoting equity, peace, and justice in any space I occupy, I feel called to record this episode and start a conversation about the Russia-Ukraine crisis. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. worded it best when he said, quote, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. End quote. Hi, everyone. It's Justin. Welcome to a special episode of Point of Dew. Hi, Nick. Hello. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. Hi, Dan. Hello. Uh, welcome, Dan, to the <laughs> podcast. You're always behind the scenes, but welcome to uh, the hosting desk. We're happy to have you. Um, I've been really filled with emotion over the situation going on in Eastern Europe um, over the last mm. couple of days. Uh but just before we go any further, I want to reiterate what I said in the intro about, you know, the three of us entering this uh, conversation with a degree of privilege, right? The three of us have privilege because we aren't living in an area of the world that is directly being impacted by the violence that is going on in Ukraine or confusion that is a result of the Russian invasion into Ukraine. We haven't gone to bed these last couple of nights worrying if we might be woken up by the sounds of bombs, nor have we thought about fleeing the life we've grown comfortable living because of the threat of a foreign military offensive. I know acknowledging our privilege is important for you know, all three of us when we talk about topics of justice, equity, and peace because it acknowledges potential biases and ignorances we might have. It admits that we aren't able to fully empathize with people's experiences and is an important step to being transparent with our audience so they can appropriately evaluate what we bring to this conversation given these privileges. But Nick, this was something that you especially wanted to bring up before we uh, continued on with this discussion with what's going on in Ukraine, right? Yeah, well, just in full transparency, um, as you and Dan can attest to, I was hesitant originally to create this episode just because my initial thought was what does the world care what I think about this issue I'm you know I have privilege I'm you know I'm not directly affected by it but 
I did want to provide ways that we can help and information on the on the tragedy just so we can maybe include the people around us in the conversation and show them how how they can help so I want to you know make this as informational as it can be and I will be posting different resources on our social media that you can use to help the people of Ukraine. And I also, one of the reasons that I decided that to go ahead with the episode is because I understand that this is probably our greatest reach would be the podcast itself and not social media. So I think it's important that we do this. Well, I thank you both for being here. I, you know, felt strongly about doing this episode because I agree, Nick, I think we have this platform, although we might not be, you know, someone who's affected or by this directly. I think what's going on affects our global community, right? And so I agree. I think this is an important episode. I think it's going to be a very heavy episode, but, you know, we don't want to stray away from those types of topics um, here at Point of Do. So. With that said, let's talk about initial reactions. Uh, the actual invasion itself, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, um, wasn't a complete surprise because Russian troops have been building up along Ukraine's shared border with Russia for a couple of weeks now. But what were your initial reactions when you heard the news that Russia had, in fact, invaded Ukraine? When did you find out and what did you think? Dan, we can start with you. Yeah. It was just another day for me, and I go onto Instagram and I'm scrolling through stories and I'm like, here we are, Russia's invading Ukraine. Uh, I'm, you know, extremely disappointed with what's going on, but not surprised in the slightest. We were expecting this for quite a while with the Russian troops on the border, um, the so-called separatist states that um, have developed um, over the past eight years under uh, Russian influence. I, I think it's definitely a tragedy and this is gonna be something that is really impactful to a lot of people um, in a negative way, unfortunately, because of greed and um, selfishness and whatever other motives um, the Russian government has. Nick, how about you? Yeah, so when I found out about it, I it was similar to Dan. I, social media was how I found out about it. And I feel that these past couple of years, I've been des desensitized uh, to different um, historical events just based on their frequency. Um, but... I don't think that the answer, like, to me, when I think about this, is every country is going through a massive health crisis right now, and we are at, we are closer than we have ever been to the point where we can't reverse global warming, and this is the absolute last thing we need, is a war, and people dying, especially for greed or power. Of one person and I just think that when you think world war which is a term that we can talk about 
in a second, because that's been thrown around a lot on social media. Um, we've heard that term before, but we've never experienced it. At least the three of us in our lives, just we weren't around um, for the first two. But when I think World War, obviously it's not every single country fighting, but we only have one world. There's only one human race that we know about. There might, you know, there might be other people in the universe, but we are, we're all we have. And to think that we could all be fighting in the midst of such trying times and crucial times where we need to be banding together or else we're not going to be here for much longer. And when I say much longer, you think like in terms of the time that humans have been around, but I just think it's the last thing that we need. And I don't think it takes an expert on foreign policy or politics, honestly. I think that if you were to ask a child, is this a good idea? They would probably say no. And I think they have more, I think that, that opinion may, honest to God, hold a lot of wisdom that for some reason people aren't grasping or not enough people are grasping clearly because this is going on. I agree with what both of you have said. I think that's a really interesting perspective, Nick, about taking the perspective of a child. I think politics and matters of foreign policy can always seem to be super complicated, but in reality, you know, they and oftentimes they are, but in reality it can be simplified to what can bring about the most peace, right? And I think there have been countries, again, I don't want to get into politics, super, um, a super amount of politics in this episode, but there have been countries that have pushed for diplomacy. NATO, members of NATO have pushed for diplomacy, um, a path toward diplomacy. Um, and yeah, my, my reaction, I was awake still when Russia invaded. I think it was about... 10 30 p.m ish eastern standard time and so i was awake and so i was just laying in bed scrolling through my phone and i got a news notification and it said russia begins a special military operation which is just political theater for invasion right and i didn't really know how to feel I think I was a little bit numb. I didn't know what this was going to be the start of. It May kind I ask of... a question? Sure. When I said desensitized, is that, are you using numb in a similar way? Like, we don't see this every day firsthand, but we hear about it all the time, events like this. That was kind of how I was coming from, or where I was coming from. Yeah, I think I think a similar sense, right? I mean, yeah, we definitely don't see countries invading other countries on this big of a scale every day. But I had heard about, you know, Russia's on the Ukrainian border, troops are on the Ukrainian border. And so I thought just it was just honestly, it was another it was another just headline that had something to do with that. Right. It wasn't until today and we're recording this on February 25th, where my sister and her friend are home and they, you know, aren't as up to date with 
the news and stuff as as I like to keep myself up to date on. And my sister asked me, you're not able to be drafted, right? Because she thought that the draft might get reinstated. Which people joke about, oh, is World War III going to start? But that's not a joke. Like, this is the largest, I'm not sure what to phrase this. I don't know if I should say violence or if I should say military operation within Europe since World War II. Like, this isn't a joke. And or that threat to peace. Threat to what? Threat to world peace. Threat to world peace. I mean, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, the consequences that could come out of this, depending on, you know, how people react to this, could be different. What I'm imagining is that once Russia captures Ukraine, will they stop there? Who's next? And will this escalate into all types of warfare in, in different countries? Or will this stay in and leave Ukraine? Right. Um, and I feel like this would be a good point to start saying this. So I thought it would be a good idea to structure this episode in a way that was informative and uh, we'll be citing sources as we go along, but also conversational. Because in today's kind of news media outlet and so much propaganda everywhere, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were all kind of talking about, talking from a foundation based on facts. And so I thought we could do a couple of things. First, I wanted to define some terms. Uh, these are a lot of, there are a lot of important terms and phrases that are being used in the news media about this conflict. And speaking for myself, I didn't really know what these meant fully. So I felt it would be helpful to define them here before we continue with our conversation. Second, I want to provide a recent timeline of Russia's military action in Ukraine, starting with their first offensive action on February 24th. This way, listeners and us hosts can all kind of be working with the same information when we start discussing. Third, I also want to give greater historical context to this conflict and provide some speculation on why Russian President Vladimir Putin would want to do what he's doing. And then finally, discuss the reactions from other countries, as Dan kind of alluded to, the impacts this has on our shared global community and what roles nations and their uh, and their people play moving forward. So a couple of terms. There's only it's only about five terms I have here, but these are just some terms, phrases, alliances that I I was unfamiliar with. Um, it had been a long time since I learned about well World War Two, Cold War things in high school, um, maybe one college course. But a couple of terms here. First on sanctions, or as they're being used today referring to economic sanctions. And this is from ABC News. Economic sanctions are defined by the Council on Foreign Relations as the withdrawal of customary trade and financial relations for foreign and security policy purposes. The sanctions can be comprehensive, which prohibit economic activity with an entire country, or targeted, which block transactions by and with specific individuals, businesses, or groups. They're often placed on individuals or entities and prevent them from doing business with the country imposing those sanctions. And sanctions put in place by the U.S. government cut off an individual or entities from the American financial system, meaning they can no longer do business in the U.S. and all their assets under U.S. jurisdiction are frozen. And the U.S. is not the only country uh, at time of recording to have implemented sanctions 
against against Russia. They aim to impair the ability of the person or entity from being able to perform the basic function in the international financial system, and they are used by the U.S. government depending on foreign policy and national security goals. It's also important to point out about sanctions, and we can discuss this a little bit more um, if we want to, that economic sanctions more times than not have unintended effects on other economies, including the economy of the nation that imposes them. So because we impose sanctions on Russia, they can't you know, do business in the American economy. But believe it or not, we, our economy is affected by our ability to do business with them too. So that can also have an effect. The second term I wanna define is G7. So this was used, um, or at least how I heard it, was yesterday morning, President Biden of the United States met with G7, the G7 group, or the group of seven, which is an organization of the world's seven largest so-called advanced economies. By the way, this is from the BBC News. They are Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States. You might ask, why not China and why not Russia? Why are they not involved in this, in this group? Russia joined in 1998, creating the G8, but was excluded in 2014 when it annexed Crimea which is a, a southeastern part, or was formerly a southeastern part of Ukraine. China has never been a member of this group, despite its large economy and having the world's biggest population. Its relatively low level of wealth per person means it is not seen as an advanced economy in the way that G7 members are. Therefore, it has not been a part of the G7. And it's important to note that G7 countries all agreed on the sanctions package that the United States and other G7 countries put on Russia. NATO, this comes from the BBC, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is a military alliance formed in 1949 by 12 countries, including the US, Canada, the United Kingdom, and France. It is now 30 countries large, and members agree to come to one another's aid in the event of an armed attack against any one of its member states. Its aim was originally to counter the threat of Cold War era Russian expansion in Europe. In 1955, Soviet Russia responded to NATO by creating its own military alliance of Eastern European communist countries called the Warsaw Pact. However, following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, a number of former Warsaw Pact countries switched sides and actually became NATO members. So this, this is the group of countries that has been talked about a lot for sure in, in the media during this crisis. And honestly, there's some discussion about how much is NATO responsible for stopping the invasion in Ukraine, but that kind of gets more complicated um, as we can discuss a little bit in a, in a moment. Two more terms, separatist regions. This is from the Washington Post. A separatist region is where the people of this specific area support the separation of themselves from a larger body. A historical example of a separatist region is the desire of the southern United States wanting to become their own nation, the Confederate States of America, during the American Civil War. In Donbass, the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, which is the easternmost part of Ukraine, more specifically the Donetsk and the Luhansk People's Republic, or so they call themselves, led by Russian-backed leaders and whose independence was recognized by Russia on February 21st, have... This has been an area of conflict since probably, say, 1991. These, the, there are people in these areas, in the Donbass areas, that more 
strongly align themselves with Russia and their values. And therefore, there's been some conflict between Ukrainian government and people who reside in these areas. Finally, Chernobyl. For those of you who don't know the importance of Chernobyl, this is the location of an accident in 1986. It was called the, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. A flawed reactor design that was operated with inadequately trained personnel resulted in a steam explosion and fires released at least 5% of the reactive reactor core in the environment with the disposition of reactive materials in many parts of Europe. Two Chernobyl plant workers died due to the explosion of, uh, of that night in 1986, and a further 28 people died within a few weeks as a result of acute radiation syndrome. And this comes from NBC, by the way. Yesterday, February 24th, Russia gained control of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. While Russia might not necessarily have a strong interest in this site, it lies on one of the most direct paths to Kyiv from Belarus. Belarus is a country that is led by a Russian-backed leader. So those are the terms that I wanted to define here right at the beginning. Hopefully that gives you a little bit more clarification on what they mean when you hear them. Do either of you have any comments about, or did you guys know what those terms were? Yeah. Yeah, just a uh, side note for the Warsaw Pact. Uh, during the, um, during, as you call it, the Cold War, but, you know, a lot of these countries identify this period of time as, as a period of communism when the uh, Soviet Union propagated its its influence and basically a lot of these countries governments in the warsaw pact were directly or indirectly in power thanks to the uh the soviet union absolutely and a lot of the countries it's also important to note that a lot of the countries in eastern europe became countries once the soviet union dissolved and a lot of those countries and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, were countries that then joined the Warsaw Pact, correct? Well, so certain countries in uh, in Eastern Europe were either part of of uh, former Soviet Union uh, members, and so they may or may not have actually been countries uh, during the Soviet Union era. For example, I believe that Ukraine was a federation within the USSR. That's actually correct, because uh, Russia and Ukraine are considered the two founding nations of the USSR. And so I wanted to now just give a small timeline of Russian military action in Ukraine. And this is definitely omitting some pieces. If you want to go to a full timeline, I know that ABC News has one. The Associated Press has a reliable timeline. Both of those sources do, and we can link them in the description of this episode. But here are just some of the big points that kind of happened and where, where it began, where the invasion began. And some of these I'm going to give in Eastern Standard Time as well as Eastern European Time, which is where the time zone that Ukraine falls in. So on February 24th at 10 p.m. Eastern, 5 a.m. Eastern European Time, Putin announced that Russia will be conducting a special military operation in Ukraine. Fifteen minutes later, those in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv could hear explosions in the distance as a full-scale invasion of Eastern Ukraine began. At 1 a.m. Eastern Standard, 8 a.m. Eastern European, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky declared martial law in Ukraine. Ten minutes later, Russian and Belarusian troops 
were reported to be attacking Ukraine along its northeastern border. At 5.41 a.m. Eastern Standard, 12.41 p.m. Eastern European Time, according to President Zelensky, Ukraine is being attacked from the northeast and south. At 8.05 a.m. Eastern, 3.05 Eastern European, Russian-backed separatist groups in eastern Ukraine's Donbass region claim they are taking over Ukrainian government-controlled territories. At 8.13 p.m. Eastern European, Ukraine loses control of a key airport at the edge of its capital. At 9.18 Eastern European, 7,000 more U.S. troops were deployed to Europe, not Ukraine, to reassure NATO allies. Again, to reiterate, they were not deployed to Ukraine. They were deployed to NATO member countries in Europe. At 10.47 p.m. Eastern European Time, Chernobyl is taken by Russian forces. It's unclear if Russia has a specific intention for taking over Chernobyl, but as I said earlier, it was on the most direct path from Belarus to the capital city of Kyiv. At 4.42 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 11.42 p.m. Eastern European Time, it becomes known that French President Emmanuel Macron participated in a phone call with Russian President Vladimir Putin demanding he halt military operations. As you may or may not know, this was unsuccessful. At 12.49 a.m. Eastern European Time, Ukraine reclaims key military airport on the edge of Kyiv. At 1.58 a.m. Eastern European Time, President Zelensky says that at least 137 people have been killed during the invasion and he and his family are in hiding, saying that it has been clear that he is the number one target of the enemy and his family's number two. Finally, at 5.43 a.m. on February 25th, 12.49 p.m. Eastern European time, gunfire and explosions are heard within Kiev in the capital city. And I want to note that a missile hit a residential apartment building within Kiev on February 25th around this time. So this is just a small timeline of kind of how things went down yesterday and into today. Just reading this, I'm kind of shaking in my seat physically. You may not be able to see me through that through this. I mean, our listeners won't be able to see me, but I'm kind of just shaking because this is this is intense. This is about 24 hours and the Russian military is close to taking over government buildings in the capital city of Ukraine. This isn't just a, a terrestrial war either, right? I feel like wars change, especially with Russia. It's a cyber war. It's a, you know, a, a, a disinformation war that's being waged too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because like, you know, especially the separatist regions, which uh, Ukraine um, identifies their governing bodies as terrorist organizations, by the way. Um, but, you know, the, the, those regions have been under the influence of Russian state-controlled media for these past eight years. You know, the, there's all sorts of avenues that Russians have been using to attack. Um, I read somewhere that, you know, just beginning uh, with a, uh, a ground uh, siege um, to eliminate Ukrainian anti- aircraft operations so that they can go in with a uh with the uh with their air force later and bomb everything so like it's you know i'm worried for and terrified for the ukrainians that are affected and will be affected by this i think that for anybody who's not ukrainian 
are not living in U- the Ukraine, I think it's, we have a responsibility to, there There are ways that we can help, and we have a responsibility to help. Um, I found a list on Global Citizen. Can I read it? Or Yeah, and we can include this in the description of this episode. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so I just want to first read the description at the top. So it says, how can I help? While many of us might feel helpless when confronted with geopolitical machinations of this scale, we've rounded up a few ways you can help the people of Ukraine right now. So the first one's donate. Ukrainians have put together a list of organizations where you can donate to help people affected by the crisis. Those organizations include medical supplies and humanitarian aid, United Help Ukraine, Nova Ukraine, People in Need, the Ukrainian Red Cross, International Medical Corps, Care International. You can help children affected by the war by donating to UNICEF Ukraine. You can support journalism, which I think is important. Dan, you mentioned this earlier. Ukraine World is an independent language multimedia project that emerged from a volunteering initiative helping international journalists during the 2014 Revolution of Dignity. You can support refugees, and it explains how to do that. You can, there's even, they add, supporting the LGBTQ plus community in Ukraine. Um, And also just, it says, stay informed, and it gives different resources on how to do that. So those are some ways that I found when I was researching how to how to help. And those, again, are provided by Global Citizen. Absolutely. And we will include a link in the description of this episode to the Global Citizen website where you can find all of those links. I think that would be the most direct way. You also talked about how if you're not a Ukrainian, and I want to talk about that a little bit too, because you think I'm thinking specifically about Poland, right? I've heard a couple of reporters reporting from Poland and the U.S. has sent some troops to help Poland at their border that they share with Ukraine because of the influx of refugees that are going to be moving towards that border. This, you know, it doesn't just affect Ukraine because all of these people are being displaced from their homes, right? Some people are staying and I have to absolutely commend the strength and the will of the Ukrainian people who are staying back and taking up arms, which their president Zelensky is saying, if you're able to, we encourage you to take up arms and and defend your country. Because like I said, NATO isn't going to because Ukraine isn't part of NATO. And that would cause, you know, the complexities of NATO and Russia's grievances with NATO and if Ukraine should be a part of NATO. Unfortunately, NATO countries, and we can talk about the responsibility of the members of NATO to go down in Ukraine and help fight, aren't going to do that. And so it's how is the rest of Europe going to be affected both economically, but also with the influx of refugees, which understandably so need somewhere to go. You mentioned Poland and I hadn't even thought about that. But yes, that's a great um, point to make when I brought it up, when I brought up the point of people who aren't directly affected by this providing aid. I think about the people like myself who we, we acknowledged our privilege at the beginning of not having to wake up fearing that we were going to have to flee um, our house. So if you do have that privilege, that's who I was referring to, um, to consider the ways that you can help. Because there are people that can't help right now that would like to. I know, like you just said, Poland welcoming refugees is is a great way, but I'm just speaking more in terms of like people that want to help that aren't being directly traumatized by this. I think that's a good way that 
you can get involved in, like like we said, Global Citizen, the link that we're going to post had a lot of good ways to do that. Dan, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm just looking at, at the map and just kind of seeing all the countries that are bordering uh, Ukraine, including Romania, Moldova, Hungary, Slovakia. So, you know, th- these countries are going to see an influx of um, migration from, from Ukraine directly, some more than others. But, you know, I feel like it's important to acknowledge the the impact that this has wor- worldwide, but specifically in the vicinity of of Ukraine. You know, there, there's unfortunately big consequences to this conflict, one of which is because of where most of Europe sources its gas, and that is Russia through Ukraine. Um, so this is going to have a large impact on people living in Europe and the UK, you know, I read somewhere that uh, energy prices are going to balloon immensely. You talk about gas, even non-European countries like the United States, that affects, you know, gas prices over here. For instance, yesterday, February 24th, US crude oil prices topped $100 a barrel, sending gas prices to an average of $3.54 a gallon. So yeah, and it's also a good point to bring up in terms of the gas pipelines because a lot of the pipelines go either from russia or not either they do go from russia through the ukraine towards a lot of europe there was a moment in history i can't remember the year but in recent history where Russia actually stopped the pipelines um, in Ukraine for a bit, and it, it took other nations to kind of ease tension between Ukraine and Russia to allow that gas to continue to flow. So for those who say, why does this matter to me, whether you live in the United States, whether you live in Ukraine, whether you live in Russia, whether you live in you know another nation in the world, this affects you, even to the point where we're all part of this one global community. Right. And I think that's really important to remember here that these are people. These aren't just nations, but these are people. And because of decisions that leaders are making, governments are making on behalf of all of these millions of people, who gets the brunt of it? The citizens, right? The people who don't get to be in the rooms when decisions are made. And this happens a lot when it comes to, you know, topics of injustice. So I think that's important to point out in terms of how this affects you, too as well as what Dan pointed out earlier in the episode, is Russia going to stop and what is their intention? And so with that, I want to give a little bit of greater context, historical context, to where what is Ukraine, um, how, you know, its history and the tension between Russia and Ukraine. And so my sources for this are um, National Public Radio, NPR, and the New York Times. A little bit of context here. First off, Ukraine is not just a country, but it's also a people. It's an ethnic group. Uh, Ukrainians are an ethnic group. So I think that's important to remember. In 1922, Russia and Ukraine, as I had mentioned earlier, became two founding members of the Soviet Union. In 1932-1933, Joseph Stalin's collectivization policy killed millions of people, mainly ethnic Ukrainians, within Ukraine, the Ukrainian territory, that is known for its agricultural exports. It's known as the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. So you can see why an area that is so rich in agricultural exports, then being um, facing starvation, you can see why there's tension there. 
During World War II, Nazi Germany occupies Ukraine. After World War II, in early 1990, anti-communist protests sweep Central and Eastern Europe, beginning in Poland and spreading throughout Soviet territories. In July 16th of 1990, the Rada, or the Rada, I'm, I apologize for not pronouncing that correctly, the Ukrainian parliament formed out of the previous Soviet legislature votes to declare independence from the Soviet Union. This declaration isn't taken seriously, and in 1991, after a failed coup in Moscow, Ukrainian parliament declares independence a second time on August 24th, which is still celebrated as the Ukrainian Independence Day. And in December of 1991, the Ukrainian people vote to make their independence official from the Soviet Union. 92% of the votes were for independence. This is a landslide, an absolute referendum against the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is then broken up in December 26th of 1991. In 1994, Ukraine agrees to trade away its intercontinental ballistic missiles, warheads, and other nuclear infrastructure, which it inherited from the Soviet Union. It was the third largest collection of nuclear weapons uh, in the world at the time in exchange for guarantees that the United States, the United Kingdom, and Russia will respect the independence and sovereignty and the existing borders of Ukraine. During the 2004 presidential election in Ukraine, Russian-backed Viktor Yanukovych runs against popular pro-democracy opposition leader Viktor Yushchenko. In the final months of this campaign, Yushchenko falls mysteriously ill, is disfigured, and is confirmed by doctors to have been poisoned. Yanukovych wins amid accusations of election rigging. Protests follow, known as the Orange Revolution. It's a bloody protest. After another opportunity to vote, Yushchenko prevails and becomes president. In 2008, Yushchenko takes steps towards joining NATO. The United States supports this, but France and Germany oppose after Russia voices its displeasure in this move. They respond with a compromise. It promises Ukraine will one day be a member, but does not give a specific day or specific path towards membership. In 2010, Yanukovych is elected president. This is the Russian-backed candidate from the 2004 presidential election. Says Ukraine should be a neutral state and should cooperate with both Russia and Western alliances like NATO. Skip ahead a couple years to the 2000, late 2013, early 2014. Days before it is assigned, Yanukovych refuses to sign a free trade agreement with the European Union, essentially making Ukraine not a part of the European Union. He cites pressure from Russia. Sparks pro it sparks protest and it calls and uh, those protests call for him to resign. Ahead of his impeachment, Yanukovych flees to Russia. Russia calls this whole endeavor a coup. In March of 2014, with Russian troops in control of the Crimean Peninsula, Parliament votes to secede from Ukraine. Russia successfully annexes Crimea, and the U.S. and allies in Europe impose sanctions. In addition, they're kicked out of the G7 organization, which I had mentioned earlier in the show. This is the only time a European nation has used military force to seize another territory since World War II, another's territory since World War II. In April of 2014, violence erupts in the Donbass region among separatists and Ukrainian officials. Two regions unofficially declare independence. They are not recognized internationally. September 2014, Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany meet in Belarus to negotiate an end to the violence in the Donbass region. They sign a ceasefire known as the Minsk Agreement between Ukraine and Russia. However, it's broken very soon after and fighting continues. In 2016, Russia launches a series of cyber attacks against Ukraine, including crippling the power grid in Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. In 2017, a cyber attack on key Ukrainian infrastructure, including the National Bank of Ukraine and the country's electrical grid, cripples Ukrainian infrastructure for a couple hours. These continue today, including targeted attacks on government websites. As we mentioned, this war is not just a terrestrial war. It's 
a cyber war. It's a propaganda war. In 2019, Volodymyr Zelensky was elected president in a landslide rebuke of current president Petro Poroshenko. Zelensky vows to make peace with Russia and end the violence in the Donbass region. His efforts, however, are slowed by U.S. President Donald Trump, who briefly withholds U.S. military aid and suggests Zelensky should work with Putin to resolve this violence. Side note, Trump also asked Zelensky for a favor to investigate the energy company Burisma and the Biden family, which eventually leads to Trump's impeachment in December 2019. In April of 2021, Russia sends 100,000 troops to the Ukraine border. Zelensky pushes for the Ukraine membership in NATO, gets no response. In August of 2021, Zelensky meets with Biden to discuss membership into NATO. Biden says U.S. is committed to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity in the face of Russian aggression, but Ukraine has not yet met the conditions necessary to join. In December of 2021, Biden urges Putin not to invade Ukraine or face consequences. Putin issues his demands. Among them, he asks NATO to permanently bar Ukraine from membership and withdraw forces stationed in countries that joined the alliance after 1997, including Romania and Balkan countries. He wants this to be in writing. From then, tensions escalate. Russian troops continue to move towards the border, and we kind of get to where we are today. So, that was a lot. You kind of can tell since Ukraine had declared its independence in 1991 that there's been tension with Russia ever since. What are your guys' thoughts on hearing that history between the two countries? Yeah, that, that's a, it's a great question. It's a heavy question. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, you know, we can see a clear pattern here that, you know, Russia is just after what they want and they don't... The, the government of Russia just, you know, it d does what it wants and obviously ukrainians deserve their independence and they they should be as nick mentioned you know we, we should come together and we should help each other out you know because if if no one stands up for ukraine then you know ukraine's gonna fall russia's gonna go after someone else and then we we can't play the game of oh you know this this doesn't affect me directly so like i'm i'm gonna stay out of it because it's like when no one else is left who's going to stand up for you it's like the poem first they came that i think both of you are familiar with the name of the poet escapes me it's a really i really like um the message it it conveys i was going to say a lot um of the same of what dan said in terms of it seems that the russian government does what it wants and if it wants something that is not good for the rest of the world, then at least it's good for Russia, and they just do it anyways. Um, but this is very, you know, this is not a complex answer, but I just pray for peace. And there are ways that we can individually take tiny, tiny, tiny steps to, I don't know, assist that. Because something that really frustrates me that I saw today was like the Catholic Church saying we pray for we pray for peace in Ukraine. And then I don't know, we've talked. I don't want to get into the Catholic Church per se, even though I brought it up. Well, what I will say on that is the Pope has been advocating for prayers for Ukraine. And he actually said Ash Wednesday, which is uh, this coming Wednesday, I believe March 2nd. He said, pray and fast for Ukraine. However, he followed that up today in an unprecedented move, and he walked from the Vatican to the Russian embassy in Rome to discuss his concerns about the war in Ukraine. That's unprecedented. There's been no, oftentimes, oftentimes 
you know, foreign ministers come to the Vatican. And, and the Vatican has a secretary of state, right? They have participated in foreign affairs. But the Pope himself going kind of echoes, Nick, what you're saying is like praying is important. Thoughts are important. You hear thoughts and prayers sometimes almost nauseatingly, but do some action too, right? Have, have that backed up by some actions of like, what are you doing to help make this world a better place? Right. And when I um, mentioned frustration with the whole thoughts and prayers um, statements being made by the Catholic Church, as somebody who identifies as Catholic, I often roll my eyes at it just because we've talked about a lot of the violence they've caused themselves. And then you just hear, you know, when we really need action, like we need someone to step up and do something and you hear thoughts and prayers get in a circle and pray about it. And I just roll my eyes, honestly, because I'm like, oh my God, like in my head, it's like, just just be quiet for like two like it that's the frustrating part to me um and i know that might sound kind of like you know angry or unnecessary to say but i i think a lot of people feel that way a lot of the time especially people that aren't religious when they're like up oh, there's the catholic church saying thoughts and prayers um but i think coupled with action but you're right i i do like um what pope francis did in terms of going to the russian embassy we talked about why Putin wants to do this, right? What Russia, like, if it's not good for the rest of the world, it's at least good for Russia. I want to point out a couple of things. One, there have been protests within Russia, despite threat of being arrested against this war. So the Russian people do not, there is a group of Russian people that do not support what is going yes. on too, right? And so I want to emphasize that a government of a country does not represent, necessarily represent, represent its people, especially a government that is of an authoritarian nature. The second thing is with Putin's, you know, what are his motivations? Well, maybe he was upset by NATO's eastward expansion. He has said that in 1990, the US said that they would not expand, they expand not an inch to the east. However, that was said towards, or actually Soviet President Gorbachev was saying that in reference to Eastern Germany in unification of Germany before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, you know, there's some discrepancies there. It's almost like he feels threatened by NATO. And so I want to bring up the question of what is the, what do you guys think the role of NATO is or was or continues to be once the Cold War quote unquote ended? Do you think it could have been disbanded or do you think, you know, what is it, what was its role before this crisis and after the Cold War quote unquote ended? I don't think I have enough knowledge to answer the question. Um, but, or I don't think I'm informed enough to answer the question, but I think that countries coming together is a good thing. So on a very surface level, I like that these countries have come together and say, okay, we're, it's, it's meant to protect each other. So that's, that's what I'll say there. Right. You know, I, I agree with what Nick said. It, I, I think it's really hard to envision the future of NATO because, you know, depending on the member states' reactions, you know, what, what they decide to do, there is no meaning in a document or a, an organization unless its purpose is upheld. I agree with that. And I think a lot, the United States is kind of the, or has been seen as like the muscle behind NATO because of just our military size and, and things like that. And so like to, to broaden the question too, it's to what extent is the United States responsible for policing world affairs such as this, right? That could be a whole discussion on its own. 
a whole episode itself. And honestly, maybe we do that. But I just raised the question because, as I said, I feel like the United States is often seen as the muscle behind NATO. Yes, we have all of these other countries. And I have a bias because I live in the United States. We're about to see how strong NATO is if Russia continues to push into other countries and what the NATO alliance means in terms of how they respond to mm-hmm. this Ukrainian crisis with sanctions or with in other ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Specifically, going back to sanctions, I was reading somewhere where, you know, uh, they're freezing assets and uh, financial uh, power of important uh, Russian businesses and uh, high-profile individuals. And notably in Switzerland, they, they are not enacting any sort of uh, sanctions financially towards uh, any related uh Russian entities. So it, it's interesting to, to note that, you know, in the context of NATO and all that. Um, do you know off the top of your head if uh, Switzerland is part of NATO or not? Switzerland is not a NATO member, nor are they a part of the EU. So we shall see how the events progress in Ukraine. Go ahead. Well, so, you know, going back to the, the muscle of that that is the uh, the United States Army or or even the United States government, including you know different intelligence agencies such as the CIA or FBI, what have you. The United States has asserted its dominance in multiple regions around the world, whether it's putting people into power for their own benefit or. Uh, for the benefit of uh, American corporations or uh, American financial interests or ideologies. So, you know, going with the trend that um, the U.S. has established for itself, would it be in the interest of the United States to uh, prevent this conflict? I think that's the question, right? Because when you talk about, say, the war on terror, right? We went into Iraq, we went into Afghanistan, and we recently just left Afghanistan in this past, in 2021. And that Mm -hmm. whole thing was honestly a shit show, (laughs) right? Just how we left and and everything like that. We fought in Afghanistan, the Taliban. Now the Taliban's back in control. So you have to think, right? Is it in best interest? It's a a question that I don't have the answer to. I don't think any, any of us have the answer to on this show. I don't think it's an easy to answer question. Is it in the best interest for the United States to fight on the ground? to then stay on the ground and, I don't know, help these nations build up? Is that our job? Is that someone else's job? I mean, I'm not interested in in necessarily finding out on this episode just because I feel like I think we should keep the episode about what's happening and how we can help necessarily and not, like, what should we, like, is it in our, like, I don't think we should talk about our benefit yeah, just a question to pose and just think about. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, and definitely a valid question, too. I just, I'm like not the person that has that, you know, brain. Yeah, we're, we're definitely not in a position to make any uh, claims on behalf of any government or population or whatnot but I, I think we can all agree that you know from a human humanitarian perspective we should avoid the loss of life and have russia remove itself from ukraine but you know mm-hmm. what happens is to be seen a last thing it's kind of important to point out is 
During the Cold War era, there was kind of an arms race, right? Who has the best nuclear weapons and then the Cuban Missile Crisis and all of that. And this isn't necessarily a Cold War era style war, right? We're not threatening each other, thank God, with our nuclear weapons. Yes, the United States is a nuclear power. Yes, Russia is also a nuclear power. But it's important to know that the United States is a different country than it was then and Russia is a different country than it was then. And so I think it's important for leaders to not take a Cold War era perspective of this conflict, at least in my opinion, but understand where these countries are coming from today in order to figure out a way, hopefully peacefully, without violence, without conflict, without war, to find a resolution to what's going on. You make an interesting point, which I'd like to counter with, you know, has Russia changed all that much? Because they've had the same president for the past 23 years almost. So in terms of, you know, can we expect similar or, you know, is this can citing change really be informative here? I would say that the leader is the same, yes. Vladimir Putin is the same leader, but I don't know if Russia is the Russia that it claims to be in terms of its strength against NATO and West and the West. I mean, if you think about it too, why is Putin I'm I'm not I'm not saying this is why Putin is invading Ukraine, but I'm saying that why do such a thing when he knows that the consequences are could be harsh on the Russian economy, right? Maybe he feels threatened. Maybe he, maybe he feels backed against the corner by NATO. Does he care about the consequences to the Russian economy? True. Does he care? <laughs> so, I don't know. I think it's an interesting question to pose. And yeah. Who knows why he does what he does. But before we close out, do either of you have any final thoughts? I, I think we should um, just talk briefly about, you know, it's been brought to my attention that there may have been some misinformation on social media uh, regarding entry requirements or even uh, possibility of uh, entry uh, into Poland by Ukrainian citizens. And so I'd like to reaffirm and we will also include the information uh, that Poland is allowing Ukrainian citizens to enter. There are multiple locations uh, where you can get resources, help, food, shelter, and there. I read that there's not a visa requirement, that all you need is a passport to enter Poland. So check out the information in the description. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Nick, do you want to plug the website that you had listed those resources from again? Yeah. I can do that, and we will put this on social media as well. But the website is globalcitizen.org. If you just Google ways to help Ukraine conflict global citizen, it should come up. But we will put the full link on our social media accounts. Thank you for that. Nick, thank you for coming on this episode, as always. Of course. Dan, thank you for joining us in this conversation. Um, I think your input is valuable, so I appreciate you being on for this episode. Yep. Hopefully uh, our conversation can be of help to uh, to people listening and indirectly towards people who are in Ukraine. Absolutely. We hope you 
found this conversation informational. We hope that you took something away from this conversation. This is just the start of our conversation. We don't know all the answers. We're just speaking from our point of views, from our point of views. So thank you for listening. My name is Justin Dew. You can reach us at our email, pointofdewpodcast at gmail.com or by sending us a voice message on our website, anchor.fm forward slash pointofdew. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Point of Dew Podcast or on Twitter at Point of Dew. Thank you again for your support in this endeavor, this podcast. We know this was not the most upbeat episode, but we feel like it was necessary given the global context we are in. We appreciate your support very much. Until the next time we hear from you, please take care. Stay safe. Glory to Ukraine.